From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Laurel Heer Dale and Michael Maloney about the Tenant Assistance Project. If you're unrepresented in an eviction matter, chances are you're going to be evicted. Okay, so you're looking at an eviction rate of 90 plus percent. After the Tenant Assistance Project started in Lancaster County, we saw what we call an immediate eviction, and that's an order for the restitution of premises entered at the time of hearing. We saw that number or percentage go from 90 plus percent down to 2 percent. The Tenant Assistance Project, also known as TAP, provides free legal advice and representation to those facing evictions. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Book clubs are fun for a lot of reasons. They're an excuse to read something new, something you might not have picked up on your own. They are a great opportunity to visit with friends. But what if you could invite the smartest, most insightful people you can think of to have a candid conversation about a great book? That's what I get to do on the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and you're invited. He really was able to convey the message in a way that gets to your heartstrings. We can really see that he is a scientist, but he's also a person who loves what he is studying. He's a scholar and a humanist, and and I think that's his greatest achievement. And then it's like, punch, punch, oh my gosh, what? So you have this like visceral, emotional connection to the poem, and it's because of the way he's linguistically playing with language Let's talk about sex, because, of course, in the original book... um, (laughs) Sam and I have always longed for someone to say that to both of us on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) A dream come true. Thank you. The Talk of Iowa Book Club podcast coming soon from Iowa Public Radio. It's time to start reading. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Laurel Heer Dale and Michael Maloney about the Tenant Assistance Project, also known as TAP, which provides free legal advice and representation to those in the community who are facing evictions. TAP collaborates with UNL's Law Civil Clinic, the Nebraska State Bar Association's Volunteer Lawyers Project, and Legal Aid of Nebraska. Laurel Heer Dale is the director of the Volunteer Lawyers Project, and Michael Maloney is an attorney with Kokel and Johnson. Here is our conversation. Well, so thank you for being on the show, both of you. I want to I want to actually start before we get into the the real issues here with just the concept of evictions. So, what does it take to get evicted? Do you want me to take that, Lori? I, I will. You can if you'd like to. So, to give you some context, I'm usually one of the bad guys. I'm a lawyer who, in my private practice, spends a significant amount of time collecting money from people and kicking people out of their houses. And it sounds bad because it is bad. So, the eviction process, right? 
there's a variety of different legal ways to do it that all kind of function the same way. The typical route you'll see in Nebraska happens under what's called the Landlord-Tenant Act, right? When you have a written rental agreement or oral rental agreement to rent a particular space, right? You do something that's in violation of the lease, typically non-payment, can be other stuff too, criminal activity, for example. The landlord will then send you a notice of a specific duration. Usually it's a seven-day notice, can be shorter than that. You then uh, sometimes have the ability to do what's called cure, whatever you did wrong, and sometimes not. And then typically, because the tenant doesn't cure whatever went wrong, the landlord has the ability to go file an eviction action, what's called restitution, right? Restitution of premises, which is a fancy way of saying, give me back my property. So it gets filed. It has to be served on the tenant. Typically, it's served in a sort of old-fashioned way called, colloquially, nail and mail is what I'd like to say. So you have to show that you've made diligent efforts to serve them personally through the sheriff or constable. But... What happens in most cases is that the the person who's attempting the eviction says, hey, I can't serve this personally through a sheriff or constable, so allow me to post it on the door and then mail a copy to the residents by first-class mail. So that's nail and mail. That happens most of the time. Whether it's effective or not to actually give notice is maybe questionable. Why is that? Because, you know... You don't know if the person's still living there, if they've abandoned the property. Uh, You don't know if somebody else who's living at the property receives the mail or takes the notice down because we don't have all those facts when we start an eviction case, especially the lawyer, right? Maybe the landlord knows those things, but the lawyer doesn't. Uh, Certainly, you have reasons to question it in certain cases, right? So assuming that's done correctly, let's say that the notice does make make its way to the, the tenant, and the tenant then has an obligation to show up at a specific date. It's usually within 14 days of that service date and filing the complaint. You then have a situation where either the tenant shows up or not. If they don't show up, they're treated as if they were present, and most of the time they lose. If they do show up, the judge will give them the opportunity to explain their position, whatever it may be. Almost always you're going to have a tenant who doesn't understand what's going on. They are most of the time unrepresented and have no legal help before TAP. Uh, the Tenant Assistance Project can get involved. Sometimes they will reach out to friends and family who will try to show up and assist them. Technically speaking, that's not allowed because it might be unlicensed practice of law, which is a crime in Nebraska. And a lot of the time the judge will point that out, unfortunately, and say, hey, you're not allowed to talk. And then whatever happens at that trial happens, right? Most of the time, I would say 95 plus percent of the time if that person's unrepresented, They get evicted um, through what's called a writ of restitution. That's a document directed at the sheriff that says, hey, this person has forfeited their lease. Go take them out of their house and put them on the street. So somebody gets evicted, then then what happens? They just have to figure out what to do next uh, and hope they have some money and and an opportunity that's going to land in their lap? My basic answer to that is, yeah, you're evicted and you're homeless and you have to figure it out. And so, I mean, how, how common is this? How common is eviction, at least in Omaha? So the number of eviction uh, cases filed in Douglas County on an annual basis is just short of 5,000. Well, so and I assume that the pandemic uh, made an impact as well on this, right? Because a lot of people were not able to pay. A lot of people did not have jobs. So, I mean, how, how, how much did that shift how many, imp- or how many evictions were happening or the general context around evictions? So... I'm trying to remember the exact date the eviction moratorium went into effect, but roll your your clocks back to March of 2020, right? The eviction moratorium is not in place yet, but we realize that COVID-19 is a real thing that's threatening people. 
the powers that be start putting in the CARES Act in place, and eventually that eviction moratorium pops up. I believe it was part of the CARES Act or almost concurrent with it, right around April or May of 2020. So let's say it takes a couple months to figure out what exactly the eviction moratorium is and, and whether we think it's constitutional or not, because lawyers have to think about stuff like that all the time. We start we start using the eviction moratorium procedures, which were basically put into effect by CDC regulation, if I remember correctly. And as part of that, what you had to do is essentially complete what's called an affidavit, a sworn statement, right? Saying, hey, I've been affected by COVID-19. It's affected my ability to pay my landlord. For that reason, I should be protected by this eviction moratorium. That's, that's the basics of it. It was a little more complicated than that in practice. But as long as you presented that affidavit to the the tenant and they completed it successfully and showed up at that hearing on that eviction with that document. They could give it to the judge. Judge could receive it as evidence and say, hey, this person has completed the legal procedure that they can complete and avoid this eviction for that reason, right? So that worked, and it it seemed to work pretty well for a long time. That all came to a screeching halt in August of 2021 because there were a series of Supreme Court actions that ultimately ended up with the United States Supreme Court issuing an opinion saying, hey, we don't think this action by the CDC is legal because it exceeded the scope of their authority by statute. In other words, it didn't really affect the public health in the way that the CDC was allowed to control by regulation. So we're going to strike this down. And the opinion, if I recall correctly, said something like, this really needs to be something that's a legislative solution that's passed by Congress, not controlled by the courts. And was there a move by Congress to do something about this? So far, I believe the answer is no. Why do you think that is? Uh, man, do I want to make comments about Congress? Um, <laughs> I think that right now the legislative system, when it comes to things like this, is very defunct- dysfunctional because of the, the sort of extreme polarization you see on these kinds of issues. You have one side of the aisle saying, of course we should get this kind of relief for people in a pandemic which is still raging, which is still killing thousands of people all the time uh, on a daily, monthly, weekly basis, what have you. The other side of the aisle will say things like, you know, this is about personal responsibility. People need to pay their rent. There is no excuse for this. We have a huge opportunity to go out and get employment. It's at an, you know, the unemployment rate's at an all-time low. There's jobs available to everybody. There's no reason you shouldn't be paying your rent. I'm not going to attempt to square those two positions. I'm not going to give you my personal opinion on it either because lawyers are good at avoiding that. But I think that there will not be a reconciliation of those two things that creates a legislative solution. Well, so, okay, to, to look at the other side of it then for the landlords then who want their rent, what's what's the argument that the moratorium is uh, something that should have potentially stayed? Or why is it, why is it that the landlords, uh, or what, I guess what do they do if they don't get their rent and why is it something, or what do you, what do you think about their take on the whole issue? So I'll, we're bleeding into personal opinion. We again. don't know. We can skip, we can skip over that. No, That's no, fine. I've got an answer for you. And I, I think this is what should have happened, but didn't maybe happen all the way through, right? So you got to understand structurally how the system's organized a little bit. We have the landlords and the tenants who have a basic contract to pay rent on a monthly basis, usually a monthly basis. Sometimes it's different. But, you know, the, the expectation and the consistency of that relationship is built on the reliance that that tenant will pay on a monthly basis in full for a period of time, right? The pandemic changed that. It took away people's ability to pay that obligation, right? So what does that affect down the cascade, up, you know, down the waterfall? It affects the, in some cases, the landlord's ability to pay their mortgage, right? So what happens when you don't pay your mortgage? You go to a, you know, a posture that puts you maybe in risk of foreclosure, 
That's not always the case. There's other ways to avoid foreclosure. You can do things like forbearance arrangements, which became a hot topic around the time that evictions were in place. Some of those forbearance arrangements were actually federally mandated for the organizations that were controlled federally, like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? Some were not. So if you had the unfortunate circumstance of having J.P. Morgan Chase or Wells Fargo as your lender, maybe they weren't going to give you that kind of relief. Ultimately, if you didn't make a satisfactory arrangement with your lender or the law didn't protect you, you're going to enter a foreclosure process, right? That foreclosure process is going to take maybe six to nine months. It's going to require people to go to court to sell that property for the default on the mortgage, whatever that amount is, right? Sometimes landlords would eventually come up with the money, sometimes not. If the foreclosure happens, that property is sold. Sometimes it's purchased by somebody outside the system, right? Some person off the street. Sometimes it's purchased by the lender for their, their debt, what they're owed, right? It's called credit bidding in our business. So where that leaves us is a, is a situation where some of these lenders have, have essentially repossessed the house that was the collateral, right, from the landlord. So the landlord loses that property, the bank owns it or the lender owns it, and the question is what happens with it, right? So you look one step further on the cascade, we have, you know, reminiscent of the 2008 financial crisis, some of these things called mortgage-backed securities, right? Those mortgage-backed securities are backed by mortgages, hence the name, right? And so those things might be at risk of defaulting on the obligations that are required by the security documents that create those, right? As it turns out, a lot of those things tend to be owned by people in like retirement plan settings uh, and bigger time investors, right? Hedge funds, things like that. So the, the ultimate risk is to those folks. They might have those investment vehicles lose value to them, and then it becomes a problem systemically to the people highest up on the investment chain, right? Mm-hmm. It's a lot more complicated than what I just said. I'll but just say I'm glad I watched the big short before I heard this answer. Right. So the bottom line is this, right? The, the answer is that it's a policy question. You have to decide what point in the chain you want to protect people. It can be all the points, it can be some of the points, or it can be none of them. We chose essentially to protect people at the bottom of the chain, the, the tenants, for a fixed period of time. Uh, maybe not fixed, but a, a period of time that went from maybe April, May 2020 to August of 2021. We then had forbearance in place for a similar you know, length of time. How much risk was spread across that spectrum is hard to say right now because I don't know if I have enough information to make that sort of assessment. But I think that the people who were in need of protection the most were the tenants, and I question whether they got the protection they need. Well, so, okay, Lori, this is when you get involved, right? This is the the origins of TAP. So explain what is TAP and how did it come to be? Yeah, that's a good question. So TAP actually started, or TAP, the Tenant Assistance Project, started at the top of the pandemic. So basically in April of 2020, and it originally launched in Lancaster County. It was a project that was created by the UNL uh, Law School, the Civil uh, Clinic Program. And they basically had a model for this project in place before the pandemic hit and weren't quite ready to launch it yet. And then comes the pandemic and they realize that while 
in other areas of the law, we're essentially, you know, slowing up the process and, and not having folks come to the courthouse, evictions and collections cases were proceeding as usual. And so they decided to launch the program. So it was Professor Ryan Sullivan and some other uh, volunteer lawyers who decided to become involved. About a month later, they contacted the Volunteer Lawyers Project and said, this is a very large project, it's growing, and we need assistance in really um, facilitating it, managing and facilitating it. And so we discussed it and decided to become involved. Um, We had already had a number of volunteer lawyers reach out to us, um, indicating a desire to help and wanted to find good ways to channel that energy. And they figured the eviction process was one of those areas. And, And it helped having a project in place where lawyers could come in and pretty easily volunteer their time. So... That project has been in existence really since April um, and has garnered a lot of attention, a lot of respect. And we had folks then reach out to us from the Douglas County area, both lawyers and um, foundations, local foundations. We actually had some national uh, funders approach us and say, what would it take to bring this to Douglas County? And so we talked about what the financial aspect of that would look like. And we had local funders um, very willing to provide those funds. And we had uh, attorneys in the Douglas County area and Sarpy County area say, look, if you'll bring this, we will commit our law firm or our lawyers to, you know, however many times a week or, or a month. And so uh, we launched here in Douglas County on August 2nd, right as the moratorium was set to expire. And we were no sooner in, we were in for about two days, and then the moratorium was extended again. So it's it's been operating for about a year and a half now in Lancaster County and for just a couple months here um, in Douglas County. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Laurel Heardale and Michael Maloney about the Tenant Assistance Project, also known as TAP, which provides free legal advice and representation to those in the community facing evictions. Join the conversation on social media using hashtag Riverside Chats. Okay, so the logistics of it then. So these the people there, they get uh, a lawyer gets assigned to them, and then what does it what does it actually look like? Like what what's the process? Okay, so the process is nearly identical in both locations, whether it be Lancaster or Douglas, but there are a couple differences. So. In Lancaster County, um, it was a very grassroots effort to launch that project, and both or, or both uh, uh, venues or programs have a lot of other organizations involved, right? So it's a collaborative effort. No one organization owns TAP, and it's not a standalone. It's a, it's a collaborative effort. So in Lancaster County, there were a lot of organizations deciding to get involved, doing different things. And some of those organizations are doing a lot of outreach and education to tenants who are facing eviction. So that the way the process really starts in Lancaster County is there are uh, community volunteers going door to door, knocking on doors for uh, tenants who have eviction hearings scheduled the next week, letting them know or reminding them about their eviction hearings, um, telling them they need to come to the courthouse, they need to show up. If not, they'll likely get evicted. And so on the day of hearing, these tenants are showing up. Okay. Now at the courthouse, we have volunteer law students, um, both Creighton and UNL are involved. And in the different areas, we have volunteer lawyers who are there, and then we have community volunteers. So in both places, we have folks who are basically just standing inside the door where tenants would enter 
um, greeting folks as they're coming in, trying to identify who is a low-income tenant who might need help with an eviction hearing who's not already represented by an attorney. Once that has been determined, then the individual, the tenant, is connected to uh, one of the volunteer attorneys and or law students who are there to assist them. And then the, you know, the work begins. So there's literally only a matter of minutes um, between the lawyer meeting his or her client and the time in which that hearing is going to occur. So a lot of activity happens in those few minutes um, between the, the consultation of the lawyer and the tenant and then the lawyer approaching the landlord or the landlord's counsel in an effort to negotiate. Okay. Most of these cases end in some form of negotiation, but not all of them end that way. Some of them end in a contested hearing or a trial. Um, but again, there's, it's, that's all done within a matter of minutes. So, and then typically once the hearing or you know, um, negotiation has ended, then in both places, um, the facilitators, so the facilitators are typically the volunteer, lawyers pro the volunteer lawyer project staff, um, will meet with the tenants and work with them if, in fact, they are facing eviction in the near future, which, you know, many of them are. They've maybe entered into a stipulated agreement to vacate within a period of time, or maybe their case was dismissed, but we know that the lawyer is for the landlord is going to refile. Um, so these folks are, you know, at some point in the near future going to be evicted and or homeless. Um, we, will, we will work with those individuals to get them connected to another organization who can help with, you know, the homelessness prevention piece. And so here in Douglas County, the one difference is we have folks from various organizations there with us at the courthouse working directly with the tenants to help them locate another place to live or talk with them through, you know, how, how are you going to move from point A to point B. In Lancaster County, we don't have that in place yet, but we do have organizations who we're talking with who are certainly willing to help, and we make direct referrals to them from the courthouse. We also work directly at the courthouse with um, the rental assistance folks. So here in Douglas County, it's MATCH, the metro area um, um, agency that that works, you know, for folks who are about to be homeless or you know, does homeless pre homelessness prevention. And in Lancaster County, we have um, the Lincoln Commission on Human Rights uh, staff from their office there working directly with tenants who are needing to apply for those funds or who have applied um, but haven't been awarded the funds yet. And so they, they help them determine the status of the application and what they need to do next in order for the landlords to get paid. Landlord, uh, landlords and landlord attorneys have been really good in both areas um, to work with the folks that we have boots on the ground from the rental assistance um, facet to help kind of really work through that process with the tenant to determine, you know, how quickly are we going to get paid? What do we need to do in order to make this happen? So that has been a huge, um, really, perk to this program. And it, it, it really, I think, is the conduit. Um, between the rental assistance folks and the landlords to get money into the hands of landlords. So how much of a difference has this made in the amount of evictions that are happening? Yeah, that's a good question. So pre-tenant assistance project, more than 90% of low-income tenants were unrepresented. Okay, Those who were represented typically were represented by Legal Aid of Nebraska. If you're unrepresented in an eviction matter, chances are you're going to be evicted, okay? So you're looking at 
an eviction rate of 90 plus percent. After the tenant assistance project started in Lancaster County, we saw what we call an immediate eviction, and that's an order for the restitution of premises entered at the time of hearing. We saw that number or percentage go from 90 plus percent down to 2%. Wow. Okay, yeah. And when I say immediate eviction, what that means is the the landlord is not at that point securing um, the eviction and writ of restitution such that the tenant would be removed within a matter of days. So most of these cases are ending in a stipulated agreement where the tenant is getting more time to vacate, more time to find another place to move and and to, to move out and be able to get their belongings and move out. So we really call that a peaceful eviction or you know a peaceful um, vacating of the premises. Well, so, I mean, ultimately then is that usually what happens then is oftentimes uh, there's some kind of procedural issue that a lawyer would be able to talk about. I mean, I don't know, Michael, you know, you were talking earlier that when you actually make these arguments, it seems like sometimes there's uh, the the angle for what the lawyer is able to do that the average civilian maybe isn't is to understand what the process of eviction is and to be able to talk about, uh, you know, maybe if part of the process was not done properly, that makes a big deal and what the verdict ultimately ends up being. Yeah, so you have to understand, I mean, I don't mean to reduce it to something too small, but it, this is just a game at the end of the day. It's it's a game where you have to follow the rules, and if you don't follow the rules, you lose, right? So our job as the lawyer is to know the rules and to force the court to apply them the right way, right? So when I go into these cases, I show up a half hour before the scheduled hearings at courtroom 20 down in Douglas County, and I'm handed an iPad, usually by Lori, sometimes by somebody else, And that iPad has a nice little summary of the things that the law student or law clerks at Creighton have kind of diagnosed as potential problems and arguments to make. You know, ultimately, it's it's on me. I'm the lawyer who's presenting the argument to the court. So I have to go through using my own knowledge and analysis and kind of look at those things and say, which of these arguments is the best? Which of these rules is the worst one to break that will be most persuasive to the court, right? And so I go in and, you know, a typical approach for me I'll, I'll approach whoever is representing the landlord. Uh, sometimes they're even representing themselves. And I'll say, hey, I've had a chance to look at the, the file material here. I've had a chance to do some analysis of problems that I think exist in your case. Do you want to talk to me about it or do you want to have a trial? Right? That all the times that I've done this so far, the answer is I'm not going to talk to you. Let's go have a trial. Right? In all of the cases that I've I've done that, and we've won, and we've gotten the case dismissed, right? Why do they Why do they want to go to trial? What's why is that the knee jerk? So, I, to to flip for perspectives for a second, I, I think it's important to at least understand that landlords in those situations are typically folks who have had fairly significant things happen to their properties that are bad. Sometimes it's damage. You know, sometimes somebody's living there without having an agreement in place at all, right? That they're squatter. Sometimes there are significant amounts of rent that are due and unpaid. And I think any normal person can understand that that's a big deal to a lot of people. If you're a single uh, you know, landlord and, and your obligation is to pay the mortgage every month and you're not getting any rental income, your property is at risk, right? And so these cases have high, high impact for both the landlord and the tenant. So I'll, I'll start there. But I think that becomes s- sort of a, a, an emotional spillover into the case. I think a lot of the landlords get to a point where they're finally filing evictions, especially when there was a moratorium preventing them from doing that for a long time. And they're saying, I want this person out and I don't want to make any deals. I just want them gone. 
And I can understand that. But like I said, this is a, a situation where you have to follow the rules. The rules matter. And if you don't follow those, you shouldn't get your eviction. That's, you know, that's how it works in our system. People rely on those rules to establish fairness, right? Yeah. And so when you have a requirement that you serve a notice on somebody that they're, you know, in an eviction proceeding, it has to be served a particular way. I didn't make the rule. I'm just following it. And so if I see that you didn't follow it, I'm going to tell you that. And I'm going to say, hey, you've got a service problem. Are you sure you want to have a trial today? And lo and behold, people have turned me down on making deals in those situations and they've lost their case. So it sounds like it's pretty common then that there's an issue in serving the eviction. So it's it's the, the problem in, in my view is that it's a very quick turnaround oftentimes, right? So the law is not set up to do things quickly uh, most often. And in these situations, you're working with a 14-day window from the time of filing to the time of the eviction hearing, right? You typically have three days to serve somebody personally with an eviction, you know, set of documents, which consist of a summons and a complaint, right? So number one, those documents have to be prepared correctly. Oftentimes they're not. Assuming they are, you then have to get them to the sheriff or the constable that's serving them. You have to actually get out to the property and attempt service, right? And you have to do a service attempt diligently, right? You actually have to try. You can't just say that you tried. After that, you can then say, okay, I tried to serve personally. Now I'm going to do, you know, constructive service or alternate service is what we would call it. And then you can do, you know, the nail and mail that I mentioned, the, mm -hmm. the mailing by first class mail and the posting on the front door, right? There's other ways to do it, but those are really the only two that work in this short time period. I think that trips a lot of people up. I think a lot of people are used to the old system before TAP was in place where you could be sloppy about this sort of thing and get away with it. And I think that's why they're being caught in the bad situations they find themselves in now. So, Laurie, do you ever worry that this is just going to result in a higher level of competency uh, in the things that people like Michael are catching? I don't worry about that at all. I'd be glad if it happened. <laughs> um, it, it certainly makes the the work a little bit easier. Um, you know, as a lawyer myself, um, I think we all strive to do the best job possible, right? And and we want our work to be the best that it can be. I think Michael pointed out the biggest issue that landlord attorneys have, and that's just that it's such a fast-paced process, very short turnaround, um, and that, you know, a lot of these attorneys are representing, you know, more than one client. So we have some of these attorneys who undoubtedly have, you know, maybe 20 or 30 clients that they're representing and and some of them have m multiple units. So, you know, we could see one attorney in court on any given day on maybe five or six hearings alone and and they may be there 3 or 4 days that week. So that's a lot of work in a very short period of time. And so we understand the mistakes that can easily get made, um, but I also, you know, we know that as a result of this project, mistakes that have been made in the past have been cleared up, um, and so we're not seeing some of those mistakes. And, and, you know, we saw a lot of that in Lancaster County over the course of the last year and a half. Um, and, you know, believe it or not, cases are actually easier to, to resolve when you don't have to nitpick through all of the what some will call technicalities or technical issues, right? We can just get to the meat of the eviction.
I'm talking today with Laurel Heardale and Michael Maloney about the Tenant Assistance Project, also known as TAP, which provides free legal advice and representation to those in the community facing evictions. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'll continue the conversation after this break. Welcome to Back Row Center, a podcast from Filmstreams, an art house organization in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm Filmstreams Communications Director Patrick Kinney, and I'm joined by Dana Ryan, Filmstreams Development Manager, and Diana Martinez, Filmstreams Artistic Director. Dana, will you tell us more about what to expect from Back Row Center? Every month, the three of us will come together to talk about what's happening at Filmstreams and in the larger film world. Our theaters are places where we use film to put different art forms in conversation with each other and springboard important discussions about identity, politics, and art with moviegoers of all ages. We're excited to bring these conversations to you in a brand new format and hopefully have some fun in the process. As many of you may know, we've been going nonstop since our closure in March due to coronavirus. From our slate of virtual events and Q&As to weekly new releases available on our site, we're excited for a more personal way to bring you all in closer to the heart of our organization by hearing straight from the people behind the scenes. You'll get to know the three of us, as well as the rest of the Filmstream's crew, as this podcast develops. Even though we're closed, we still believe in the power of film as a collective, communal experience. So subscribe to the podcast through whichever platform you listen, and we encourage you to tell us your thoughts about future topics, the films we talk about, and stuff we need to watch through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Filmstreams everywhere. Until next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, Back Row Center. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Subscribe today and leave us a review. I'm talking with Laurel Heer, Dale, and Michael Maloney about the Tenant Assistance Project, also known as TAP, which provides free legal advice and representation to those in the community facing evictions. Here's the rest of our conversation. I mean, so do you think TAP in its existence has made an impact on the way that landlords or their representation are coming to this sort of, uh, you know, the conflicts between, uh, you know, any, any of these sorts of eviction uh, situations? Like, is the attitude shifting because TAP exists? Um, it depends, I think, on the particular attorney, and it depends maybe more on the venue. I mean, TAP has been in existence in Lancaster County for quite a bit longer. And the attorneys there, uh, the landlord attorneys there, I think have to some extent come to appreciate the fact that there are going to be attorneys on the other side now. So they're not dealing with pro se tenants, which, you know, I know that in some cases that may make it easier, but in other cases it's a lot more difficult to deal with a pro se tenant, particularly one who maybe is, you know, has some mental health issues and really just wants to come to the courthouse and make a bunch of noise and cause problems and, you know, hold up that process. Um, So I think that there's a number of attorneys that really appreciate having an attorney on the other side. 
I would say there's a difference between Lancaster County and Douglas County in that Lancaster County, this project just abruptly started. Nobody knew it was going to happen. And so it took the court by surprise and it took the landlord attorneys by surprise. In Douglas County, things were done differently because we had more time, right? And we could look to see what some of the challenges were in Lancaster County and how we could maybe fix that in Douglas County. So in Douglas County, um, the court knew what was going on for several months and you know, were very willing to meet with us um, and try to resolve issues before maybe they would occur. And we had several, at the Bar Association, we had several informational sessions for all attorneys and one that was exclusive to just attorneys who represent landlords to try to hear what their concerns might be and work through those before we even launched the program. So I feel like in Douglas County, when we walked in and started, everybody knew about it. And I, I feel like it, it was a much more, we were more welcomed um, there than we were perhaps in Lancaster County where it was just so abrupt and nobody knew that we were gonna be there. Is the program expanding beyond Douglas and Lancaster? It has not yet. Uh, there's lots of conversation about whether it will. Uh, lots of questions um, about how that can happen, how we can make it work. Certainly, we feel like there can be this project in other parts of the state. The model would have to look different, though, because we, you know, we only have so many law students, and there's only so many, you know, for to to make this project successful, it really requires um, staff from the Volunteer Lawyers Project on site. Um, that can facilitate it. So can, you know, help greet those tenants, connect them with the attorneys, work directly with the attorneys, you know, answer some of their questions, and really just kind of handhold um, both through the process. Without that, it's it's a little more complicated. And so, you know, the Volunteer Lawyers Project exists primarily on the eastern side of the state. We do not have staff outside of the Lincoln and Omaha area. And so in order for us to facilitate in greater Nebraska, that would be a lot more complicated. Well, so, so that kind of suggests that there's bigger systemic issues. I mean, why are there not resources? I mean, should there be like a federal program for this? What would you like to see in an ideal world to try to provide the resources you'd need to help these people? Sure. Well, um, there was legislation brought this last session for a right to counsel program, and that was defeated. Um, I anticipate that that will come up again. Um, I anticipate it will be defeated again. Um, it has, you know, it's been brought in other states and more so you see it in other municipalities or cities um, where there's right to counsel for housing and eviction issues, but there's not a lot of those. Uh, I think the pandemic certainly, um, you know, shown a light on just how difficult evictions are for everyone, the community, not just the person being evicted, um, and really the crisis that existed pre-pandemic. Um, it was just exacerbated during the pandemic. So, you know, I feel like for anybody who's working in this area, trying to help low-income people, obviously a right to counsel program would be the answer. Um, you know, obviously there's opinions on the other side of that, um, and I. I won't express my own opinion here. <laughs> You're welcome to if you want to. but uh, uh, I have to be very careful about that. <laughs> okay. uh, being being employed by the Bar Association, and we're a member organization, membership organization that has both sides, right? Mm -hmm. We, our members, our landlord attorneys, and others, uh, we have to be 
pretty careful about what we say. Got it. Well, so I did talk to our friend of the show, Matthew Wersner, uh, earlier today, and he mentioned to me that lawyers generally don't like to take landlord-tenant cases. And I, he didn't really give me more clarity than that. I was curious what your take is. Is that generally true? And if so, why? So I'll go the other direction on that. I love landlord-tenant cases. The The statutes that exist in Nebraska on landlord-tenant are actually fairly clear. They're fairly well-developed. They seem straightforward enough to apply in practice. So I take a, a fairly good an, a amount of those cases, whether it's in my private practice or pro bono through things like TAP. So I think they're great. I think they're lots of fun, and I would challenge anybody who would say otherwise. I think the difficulty is more the difficulty that's a, a general experience for lawyers everywhere, which is some clients are unreasonable, some clients are hard to work with. Maybe that's true in landlord-tenant cases, maybe it's not. It hasn't been my experience. I think by and large, the people in landlord-tenant cases need and deserve and merit more attention and more help than they get. Laura, do you have experience with, uh, I don't know, people who feel the other way, or do you have a, a take on this? I think what Matthew was getting at was, and this is probably echoing, um, well, it might be getting at some of what uh, Michael was saying, but, you know, tenants generally don't have money to pay a lawyer, right? Low-income tenants. So most lawyers aren't going to get involved in these cases because they're not going to get paid for the work that they're doing. So, I, I mean, I feel like probably that's what he was getting at. Now, I don't know. He may have been coming at it from the other side, from, you know, representing a landlord. But I, I, I don't see the downside in that. I mean, there's certainly money to be made. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, that's a tough situation as part of these programs have to be motivating in a way that isn't purely financial, right? It has to be, I mean, it's just, it's a morality sort of motivation, right? Mm -hmm. Have you found, is it, has it been easy to recruit based on that without having a big financial compensation to offer? It's been very easy to recruit to represent these low-income tenants, um, but I think there's, uh, for two reasons, number one, just the pandemic alone, right? When a crisis occurs, you know, I think all human beings reach out trying to find ways to help others. We're just naturally that way. And, and lawyers are very much the same. You know, they're thinking about how can I use my skills um, to help folks who are really struggling and challenged right now. And so because this launched during the pandemic, um, you know, I, I, I feel like many lawyers were reaching out solely for that purpose. But the lawyers who get involved with this program love this program. They absolutely love it. Um, and I think the reason, there's two reasons for that. Number one, from a pro bono perspective, um, it's bite size. It's easy to do. It's short in duration, right? They show up at the courthouse, they're there for an hour, two at the most, and they're done. And the law students who are working on this program make it easy for them you know michael talked about essentially all of the information that these law students are gathering on every single case prepping these cases so that when the lawyer gets there they really just need to look at the packet of information for the particular case and they're ready to go so that makes this easy the other thing um, that i think really makes this particular pro bono program popular is the fact that you get an instant result, right? And these results are impactful. So if you are preventing a person from being homeless tonight, that is impactful. And in most cases, you know, 98% of the time, maybe 99% of the time, if you're in Douglas County, that's going to be the end result. You're going to keep a person from being homeless one more day or 
you know, in many instances, at least a week or two more weeks. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Laurel Heardale and Michael Maloney about the Tenant Assistance Project, also known as TAP, which provides free legal advice and representation to those facing evictions. Well, so, so Michael, I want to ask you then from your perspective, because I get the, the bite-sized argument. It's short. It's simple. There's a direct result. But also, it sounds a little stressful to come in and have to figure this all out on such a short-term notice, right? Yeah. So it, from my perspective, I'll just give you my own sort of setup when I take these. I am a guy who likes to go do my own homework on this. I will, the night before, read all the landlord-tenant statutes in the state of Nebraska, even if it takes me three or four hours, because I want to be able to be fresh on the law. I want to be able to quote it line and page to the judge, because as smart as our judges are, they don't always have it readily available, you know, what the solution is on the statutory basis for the particular eviction claim we're talking about. And so I want to be able to feed it to them on a silver platter, right? Because that makes my job easy. Because then they will, you know, say, well, Mr. Maloney just quoted me the law and turn to that landlord's attorney and say, what do you have to say about that? And oftentimes my experience is the response is a little bit of scrambling and a little bit of stammering. And that makes these folks feel good that they've got somebody there to protect them, right? And as far as appearing on those mornings goes, I think that it's the closest thing our profession has to emergency surgery, right? You are showing up to someone who has an urgent problem that they need you to fix right away. You have very little time to prepare on the specific facts of their case, which is why it's nice to have an easily digestible summary that another law student or clerk has prepared. And then you go in and you do the things that you do best. You recite the law, you make the arguments that are the most persuasive based on the materials you've been given and that you've reviewed, and you hope for the best. And so far, my record is two for two, so I can't say I've had anything but a rewarding experience on these kinds of things. And Lori's absolutely right to say that nothing feels better in our profession than keeping somebody from being homeless, as far as I'm concerned. It's much better than the day-to-day stuff that I do, even when people are paying me to do it. Do you remember? So the first one you did, though, I mean, it sounds like you've got you've got the system figured out now. But was it sort of like stressful at first because it's you know just something new, a new kind of challenge? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you the the short story on this one. So I showed up day one, didn't really have any briefing on the technology, although I knew the law you know as well as I could at that point. And Lori gives me the summary of the pleading. She says, "Hey, here are the arguments we've got you know prepared by our students." The particular gentleman in my case on that first occasion was self-represented, so I found myself in the odd position of being a lawyer representing somebody who was not there uh, against someone who was pro se on the landlord side, which does not happen very frequently at all. Well, in this particular case, this tenant had no other place to go. This was a family member's household, and if she was kicked out, she was on the street, right, with a nine-month-old child. And I pointed that out to the judge to give a little sympathetic spin, because that's what you do when you're a lawyer, right? But in this case, this, this self-represented landlord had not followed even the very basic stuff that's required when you file an eviction case. I mean, he'd had a complaint. It was not properly served. It didn't have the right allegations in it, right? My obligation in showing up and representing somebody, even a person who's not there, is to point those things out to the court because I have to make the best argument I can and zealously represent that person, right? So I had a judge who was very accommodating to this landlord who gave him every opportunity in the world to say his piece and ultimately said to this landlord, sir, are you sure you really want to go to trial today? Wouldn't you rather just dismiss this? And he did. And there's not any better feeling in the world than that. Well, so another thing that, I mean, I guess another element of why you're here is because you want to get the word out to other people who might be interested, right? So how does that work? What's the process of getting involved with TAP? It's a very simple process. 
email me. <laughs> email me. Um, we will, and actually any one of my team members, there's at least three of us at the Volunteer Lawyers Project who are involved in directly in the Tenant Assistance Project. Um, so the way we basically schedule and, and manage the volunteers is we use Sign Up Genius. So super simple, right? So when an attorney emails us or even you know any other community volunteer and says, I want to get involved, we s- respond to them with... Um, a number of resources that they can read to get themselves prepared, and also the link to our Sign Up Genius um, and explain really what the process looks like, um, you know, when to show up to court, where to show up, who to look for, um, and, and really what their job is going to entail when they get there. So we try to make this as easy as possible for folks um, to not only encourage them to sign up and, and volunteer, but so when they actually get there, um, they know what they're doing. They know where they need to be, and they know what they're doing. Well, so for people who are either studying law or are lawyers, there's obviously uh, an opening there. But if, if somebody's just passionate about the cause, do you have things they could do as well? Absolutely. In fact, I had a new volunteer start this morning, um, what we call those community volunteers. And so one of the major struggles we have is identifying anybody who could be a tenant, a low-income tenant, um, who needs help in an eviction hearing. So at the courthouse, there's only really a few doors you can use to get in, okay? And so what that means is we will have a lot of people entering the doorway right outside of courtroom 20. And, you know, any one of those could be somebody that the Tenant Assistance Project wants to help. And hearings start at 9 a.m. And as you might guess, folks start showing up about two minutes to nine, right? And so the security area gets just back full, filled full of people and they're coming in scurrying, trying to figure out which direction they're going to. And not all of them are going to courtroom 20. Some are going to you know various other parts of the courthouse. But we're trying to talk to each one of those individuals because a lot of times folks are lost. They don't know where to go. It's not obvious. And so, you know, we're trying to talk to every single one of them to determine, do you have a hearing in courtroom 20 at 9 a.m.? And if so, what type of hearing is it? Is it an eviction hearing? Is it a garnishment hearing? And if it's an eviction hearing, okay, great. Are you a landlord or are you a tenant? And if they say they're a tenant, then we ask them if they have counsel. Um, so that process takes time, and it takes a lot of hands to, to talk to all of those folks that are coming through that doorway. So that's typically um, the role that we have folks play. But we also have community volunteers in the courtroom observing hearings um, because we communicate with them to figure out how far the judge is down on the docket <laughs> to determine. So for tenants who come in late, which today we had three of them, show up after 9.15 a.m. trying to determine if the court has already called that case. Uh, because if they haven't, then we need to get the tenant in the courtroom immediately. And if they've already called it, we may not be able to do anything for them. Uh, we also have community volunteers um, connecting the tenants to the folks that we have in Douglas County that are there to help with homelessness prevention. So like Heartland Family Services, Together, Eastern Nebraska Community Action Partnership, trying to make those connections and those referrals so they get assistance beyond what's happening at the courthouse today. So is there an easy website URL I can tell listeners to go to if they want to learn more or get involved? 
Yes. So the easiest way to get involved is to go to nevlp.org. So that's the Volunteer Lawyers Project website, nevlp.org. If you go there, you will see um, some information about the Tenant Assistance Project. You can click on it, and then it will give you uh, the information to get in touch with me. All right. Well, is there anything else that I that we can talk about while I have you here today before our time is up? So one thing that I would broach, right, I, I, I've found in my experience that some of the younger lawyers are hesitant to get involved in activities like this because they just don't feel comfortable in this area. Maybe it's outside the thing that they're doing on a daily basis in their private practice or in their role in their law firm. You know, it's, it's easy for me to come in and not have that same level of fear as somebody who's been out for a couple of years and somebody who does these cases in private practice. But I'm here to say, don't worry about it. The folks who are working with this program through the VLP have prepared summaries and checklists of the things that you look for when you're defending these cases on behalf of tenants. I prepare my own summaries and research notes because I research these cases on my own time. All of us are happy to help you prepare so that you feel comfortable handling these cases. That shouldn't be a barrier to you helping these people because they're the people who need it most. Thanks, Michael. The other thing I wanted to say about that is we offer all sorts of opportunities to shadow and have a mentor attorney. So if this is an attorney who's coming in who's never practiced in this area, which we have quite a few volunteers um, in that situation, they come in a few times, shadow one of the attorneys like Michael or others who've done this work before, and then eventually when they feel comfortable to take a case on their own, we'll pair them with an attorney who can mentor them through that process. So, and we let that volunteer attorney guide us through what they really need to have the help and support in place to do this work. So, you know, as long or as short a period they need to to feel comfortable doing it, we're there to support that. Well, I really appreciate both of you taking time to talk about the Tenant Assistance Project. It's been very illuminating for me personally, and I think the listeners will get a lot out of it as well. So I wish you the best of luck with it, and thanks for being here. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.